Welcome, my name is Kareem Kanji, and this is episode 44. Last episode, I chatted with Scarborough Area MP Salma Zahid. In that enlightening conversation, one of the things we learned about Salma was that her political mentor is George Smitherman. Today, we talked with the one-time Toronto mayoral candidate, former Liberal MPP and Ontario's first openly gay MPP and Ontario Cabinet Minister, George Smitherman. Enjoy this conversation. Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Thanks for coming in, George. It's my pleasure. It's t- it's taken a while for us to uh, to actually set not set this meeting up to actually set up our equipment. So I appreciate your patience uh, while here. And I think you told me before we started recording that you've got two young kids, which is where you'll learn how to be very patient. Yes, everybody that knows me knows that I'm known for my patience. Yeah, but uh, kids uh, kids bring out the best of that, and you don't they? They really force it. Yeah, they force it. This is the thing, right? Well, if you can't get past it, uh, then you're just a very unhappy person constantly. So you've got to you've got to find a different gear. And for me, that's been an exciting aspect of uh, of uh, parenting. Awesome, awesome. And I want to sort of get into that, you know, parenting and uh, um, you know how how you go about doing that. Um, but let's sort of start off where we always start off. Actually, not where we always start off, but I didn't set it up this way. But this is episode forty four. Episode 43 just happened to be with my MP, uh, Salma Zahid, who, um, by happenstance, considers you her political mentor. And she actually said this and recorded it, that he's my, he's a brother to me. Um, and I said, awesome. And I, and I told her, uh, I actually have George coming in studio. Uh, and you were supposed to be like two or three episodes down the line, but things have happened. People had to, 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 to reschedule. So we're doing back to back here. Um, and, and I'm going to ask people to listen to the both and see if any of you have fibbed in terms of how you know each other <laughs> or, or anything like that. Um, so I, I'm actually excited to to speak with you, um, and we'll talk about sort of um, um, you know, how you you came to know Selma. I, I put out a question on, on my Facebook, um, to say, hey, listen, I've got uh, Mr. George Smitherman coming in studio. Are there any questions? And one of them, um was a question about, um, you know, someone like Salma who was an immigrant to Canada and just wanted the best for her family and, and how she sort of got your attention. And, uh, and I, want to, I want to talk about that. You know what? Let's talk about it now. You well, know? I think uh, first and foremost is to say that uh, Salma is a great Canadian. Yeah. And um, the sense of pride that I have as a Canadian from her ascension to become a member of parliament I think she arrived in Canada in 1999. I met her within mm-hmm. a few years uh, after that. The image, which is... Uh, you were her MP. I was her MPP. Her and, MPP, yes, yeah, sorry, um, MPP. She was uh, someone that approached me in the community associated with advocacy. At that time, the Toronto District School Board was offering full-day kindergarten in certain neighborhoods. Yes, right. Regent Park being one of those. Yeah. Now, of course, we have f- full-day kindergarten all across the land now. 
But going back uh, 15 years ago to the time of uh, Mike Harris, mm -hmm. uh, we were experiencing uh, reductions in funding for education and full day kindergarten was yeah. being closed in Regent Park. Salma's kids uh, were beneficiaries of full day kindergarten back then. Salma, of course, has a master's degree in education That's from right. a prestigious university in the United Kingdom. And um, she had a very, very effective capacity to advocate. So I said, well, come and see me at my office. And I'll remember the day she came in there. My office uh, at four, was then up at uh, 410 Sherburn Street. And she pushed the stroller in through the snow, uh, loaded up with her two kids, oh one of one of whom just turned 18. That's so, right, um, yeah. you know, it's been a uh, it's been a great piece of uh, piece of a history between me and Salma. But it uh, started from her capacity to advocate around education. Yeah. And what what did you see? Because she's then started working for you, right? Well, you know, I, I try to, uh, you know, you try to be a talent scout when you're in politics. Yeah. Uh, you look for every opportunity that you can to animate people, to uh, bring them into your political association if they're partisan motivation. Yeah. Uh, in Salma's case, I really uh, was uh, struck immediately by her communications capacity, by the, uh, by the uh, roots of empathy that she, uh, that she had. To be a politician in downtown Toronto mm -hmm. is to be, in a certain sense, almost like the operator of a social service agency, mm. a constituency office. I never yeah. use the word constituency office. I call it community action center. Yeah. But ours was very much oriented to try and assist people who were very, very often in a real struggle for, uh, in a real struggle for survival. And I just figured that someone that could advocate as effectively as Salma would be effective at, uh, at, uh, uh, helping mm -hmm. people yeah. with their real uh, real world uh, problems and after i became a minister and had uh, uh in premier mcginty's government and had less a little less time on the front line in my own community sure. uh salma really uh really uh, ran with the ball and was so imp we had a similar orientation which is that the best politics is politics where you go out and meet people rather than that they come seeking you out. Real uh, community outreach orientation. Yeah. Uh, skating programs for new, you know, kids and new Canadians right. at the Moss Park Arena. Yeah. And uh, uh, Salma started a book club. We had six or 700 people coming out to Jeez. events in Regent Park in St. Jamestown, where at the end of it, we would give out thousands of dollars worth of, uh, worth of books. So I really appreciated about Salma, her capacity, you know, her background knowledge and all of that. Um, her capacity to be uh, to be an advocate and her orientation to uh, work. Yeah. You know, I, I had the I use the expression often: uh, never outworked, often yes. out often outsmarted yeah. for myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, but what I uh, I could say at least the the first half of that really has uh, taken with Salma in the last election cycle. Her Scarborough Centre riding led yeah. by her was the most active through the whole piece for the Liberals in terms of voter contact. That means wow. no liberal candidate across more than 300 of them in yeah. Canada yeah. outworked Salma and her team in Scarborough Centre. Really? And that's something. She and, was, she's, and she's already been out knocking on doors again, which is yeah. exactly the appropriate thing to do, but not something that all politicians find the time to do. Now, is that something that she learned from you or is that just her character? Or I... Um, I represented an urban, an urban piece of territory here in downtown Toronto, where yeah. we are, where we are now. It's possible to use campaign techniques in an urban area, which are what I describe as gravity feed. 
yeah. it's relatively easier, whether that's stand on the street corner and let 500 or 750 people walk past you, yes. speak to you if they want to, yeah, or stand in the lobby of a, an apartment building. Or campaign in the apartment building from top to from top to bottom. Yeah, that's uh, those things are all from a physical standpoint at least much easier to do yeah. than in a suburban riding. True, going from fifth, you know, across the forty-five foot lots from one to the next to the next to the next to the next, yes. and that's more the nature of Scarborough Center. That's much right. more, much more single-family residence like. But she, yeah, she's uh, you know she's got exactly the right orientation. She's the only candidate that I spoke to at my door. I think the NDP candidate was walking because we. We drove by him knocking on doors. Um, and I told her this. I, I was ready. I'm pretty sure the PC, the conservative candidate, was doing nothing except hiding out, nothing in, her, Roxanne, hiding out in her office. I, I never met Roxanne. No. Never came across Roxanne. And Selma said during the last election cycle, Roxanne James never showed up in any candidate's debate. Her, ironically, her... Uh, her when she opened her campaign office, it had a big uh, uh, Roxanne James at his head, a big poster that said something like, uh, there for Scarborough. And I, uh, I said, you should go and take a picture in front of it and say, when were you last there? Where in Scarborough? Yeah, like, where was it? Because uh, no one noticed. No. And um, and if, if she didn't knock at my door and if she wasn't, um, she wasn't pushy. She was, I think persistence is the right word. Um, and, and I told her, I said, there, there's a piece of legislation that Trudeau, that the, the liberals um, who were in opposition um, voted to back that I wasn't happy with. Um, you know, with, with, you know, as a family that has, has immigrated, uh, essentially immigrated to Canada. And, you know, she promised me, says, we need to revisit that. Um, Justin has promised that if elected, they will reopen it and they will change some of the things that aren't working. Um, and, and I said, if, if you win, I'm going to hold you to that. Um, and, um, you know, she won. She changed. She changed my mind who I was going to vote for. Um, and she came in studio two weeks ago, I think now, and, and said that they, they've started and to expect something, uh, you know, this year in terms of conversations, uh, you know, in parliament to, to start moving that. This, that this relates to citizenship. I think if I'm the it citizenship was, and immigration, C51, right? C51. Right. Yes. I, I met with Salma on Friday and was uh, talking to her about that. I know that some people in the press have criticized the government for not fulfilling the commitments that they made to make the changes yeah, by yeah. now. Yeah. But I do know also that the uh, minister involved is, uh, yeah. Ralph is work- Goodale, I think is that uh, is it, uh, is it, uh, Ralph Goodale. And I think John McCallum has uh, yes. some, uh, some piece to play in it yeah. also. So I do know that they're working towards it. You know, oftentimes the difficulty is that the perception is given that a person in power has all the power, but actually, even if you have mm-hmm. a lot of power, yes, making change and moving things forward is, uh, is, uh, energy intensive and it takes mm-hmm. time especially a new government comes in there's a very very aggressive agenda so imagine from a standing start trying to get 150 or 200 different policy items in play yeah it's a very very uh it's a very uh, complicated uh it's a very very complicated process you know we have um we're, we're used this uh, parliamentary system first uh, first from Westminster hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. It hasn't evolved, in my opinion, it hasn't evolved all that effectively okay. in recognition or of... Or all uh, that much, yeah. Well, because um, legislation... So there was a story recently that said that the Trudeau government has not been productive in its earliest phase, measured by how many bills did you pass, okay. which could be a measure of productivity of a government, but it certainly shouldn't be the only one. Okay. But the point is that um, if you go to city council... If 
if city council wants to move on something rapidly, like the introduction of a new bylaw, yeah, they can do that with very, very rapidly. Okay. In a parliamentary context where you have to pass a piece of legislation, it has a minimum of three readings. Each of those readings has statutory amounts of time that would be set aside for them. My point is that um, in the situation where you require a piece of change, where the piece of change that you're working on requires change at the legislative level, yeah. it's a very, very, uh, it's a very, very narrow portal to uh, uh, to get your uh, uh, to get your policy item through. The, the House of Commons sits a certain number of months. It's got a certain capacity to pass a certain number of bills. It's not. Okay. It's it's quite finite. Interesting. Um, a little inside, a little you know, a little no, inside baseball, but it's yeah, it's yeah. the practical reality. Very often, when you're in a powerful role, people will uh, will uh, assume, in a certain sense, that there's uh, an expectation of that, sorts. and that and that uh, and that stuff can happen, yeah. uh, and that stuff happens easily for sure. Um, Nothing good comes easy. That's what I've been told. That's true, but I th- I think there's also I think it would be interesting, and in, in whether or not people are interested in it or not is is another question. But I think it would be interesting to sort of have some sort of, you know, educational aspect in there where people know, hey, listen, we promised you A, B and C. And, and maybe um, Justin promised that, you know, in, in his government, there's always this. This is what we'll do in the first hundred days. There's always that, you know, first 100 day report card. If there was some education where this is actually how long it takes to get something, you know, from, I, I guess, research and consultation to first reading, second, third, and then passed. I think um, I don't know how you educate. Like I don't know how you educate people around that. In one in one sense, think of it like this: in the run up to the last election, the yeah. Liberals were campaigning as a party in third place, mm-hmm. even though Justin Trudeau was, you know, immensely personally popular to the point people said, "Well, who do you think is going to win, Trudeau or Mulcair?" I said, "All I know for sure is if you put them on two on a street corner, uh, you know." T- uh, which one of them was going to which one of them was going to attract a throng and in politics if people are attracted to you that's a pretty good uh, yeah. pretty good start so then you have everybody campaigning making policy commitments here there and everywhere and sometimes i think it's a bit difficult to take uh take stock of exactly uh especially for liberals i think who have kind of this progressive activist orientation yes you can uh you can exceed your uh, your reach can exceed your grasp somewhat mm. and so i think it ha- it does mean, of course, that you're elected, new government, big numbers, very, very high, uh, very, very high expectations. Yes. And then the reality sets in, which is, you know, these issues are complicated. There's yeah. 150 or 200 issues you're trying to get your head around. And there's a very, very limited kind of portal, uh, the legislative portal by which uh, actually the legislative change would be uh, would be struck. So. But I, but I, I know that there's some impatience always on matters, but sure. I do sense, generally speaking, in the public, quite a lot of patience for the Trudeau government so far. I mean, yes. people are, uh, uh, for the most part, at least whom I've spoken uh, with, uh, people are still quite a bit of goodwill for the government. You, you, you left out when you said, you know, who do you think is going to win? The two choices were Mulcair and, oh, and Mul- Trudeau. Oh. No, I said like stand on a street corner. Yeah. All I knew in advance was but you didn't say he, Harper though. That was was it a was it a foregone conclusion that they were not going to win? No, I don't. I don't think so. But I was. Uh, but I was battling it. But I was battling it out on the side of you know trying yeah. to convince people who had a progressive you know progressive orientation to choose a liberal path versus yeah. uh, versus uh, a mock liberal class you know uh, option like sure. more care. Yeah, you know, interesting. 
Um, you you were born here. Were you born? You weren't born. Here. I was born Toronto, at right? Humber. I was born at Humber River Hospital. Oh, there you go. And, so, yeah. uh, as were as were by nice coincidence my adopted kids and okay. uh, and uh, that's uh, Church Street in. Uh, and so I always like to say from Church Street to Church Street. Um, <laughs> now, uh, my kids and I, uh, we recently attended the opening of the new Humber, uh, the new, uh, the new yes. Humber Hospital, which, yeah. is, uh, which is a sight to behold, really. It's so, so big. You, so you've grown up in the city? I grew up in, I grew up in Etobicoke, but okay. uh, after my disaster is showing in 2010 mayoral election where the people of Etobicoke really didn't support me too well, I'm pretty much, uh, yeah. I'm pretty much denying that part now. <laughs> Um, what, what got you, what got you interested in politics and where, I know you did some stuff in school, you were active in, in, in school. I, you know, when you say school, when you say school, most people think that's like, oh, like universe, no, like you have to keep in mind here is I only went to high school folks. I was already so smitten. You were a high school dropout. I was, I've been said I'm a high school dropout, but it's not actually the case. I do have a high school degree. Okay. So uh, okay. it's not quite that dramatic, but I, I, um. It would add to the story. <laughs> it was, well, I only got four grade 13 credits. So listen, I got okay. my grade 12 diploma, but not the 13 one. So I suppose you could say it's yeah. uh it's a little of each. And then uh, young people are like, what the hell is grade 13? Grade 13? <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, exactly. That's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, uh, way back, uh, way back then. Um, I, I was raised in a, uh, I was raised in a family with, uh, where the women in my family, my mother and my grandmother in particular played a big, big role in, uh, social consciousness, uh, raising, um, as a, uh, as a, a youngster, uh, I was in the womb when John F. Kennedy was assassinated wow. and we went to, I don't remember this so well cause I was so <laughs> young, but we went to Arlington cemetery twice, once before the eternal flame was Oh, working okay, and yeah. once after and uh as a child as well i mean i was sure oh, I, I was you toddler, know i was yeah. a, as a toddler but yeah. a, kind of a i think an insight into uh an insight into uh, my into my mother's uh, uh philosophical orientation and my grandmother uh, similarly very very focused on kind of social side objectives and uh looking out for one another and compassion towards others uh whether that's locally or or globally uh, by the time um I was in high school, the 1979 election campaign rolled around. That's, you weren't born then, but that's when uh, Joe Clark uh, beat Pierre Trudeau, uh, May 22nd, uh, 1979. And uh, that kind of caught my attention. I went to a couple of, I went to the, a big rally at uh, TD Center with about fifteen thousand people for with Trudeau. And you're in and your high. This is in high I'm school. I'm in high school. Yeah, okay, yeah. Right. but I was like, uh, uh, I was uh, <laughs> once politics was on the radar screen. Really, it was uh, it was always a, a question of not of if but when. Okay. So in '79, I kind of caught my attention. Then the government, uh, the Clark government, fell in the in a very very dramatic event. I think it was December fourteenth of nineteen seventy nine. Uh, the, Is that a the, result of the budget? Or? Yes, okay. and Bob Ray uh, moved a motion of non-confidence. He was then a front. He was then the uh, NDP finance critic, if I'm right. Wow. The Liberals and the NDP, and yeah. I think even the Social Credits or something combined to defeat the uh, uh, Clark government. And February 18th, 1980, was Pierre Trudeau's last election campaign, and a campaign where every day but one, I went to the Liberal office and found. Not just a movement, but actually, in a certain sense, an extension of my family. Interesting. And um, 
I think it's is I'm lucky enough to be old enough to have had one foot in the old in the old Trudeau camp. I'm 52. I mean, I, I, I'm older. That's enough not to, that old. No, it isn't. But it's but it's old enough to be able to Fair remember enough, yeah. to remember uh, to remember uh, Pierre Trudeau. And uh, I feel so fortunate in the sense to be able to uh, uh, to have had ex- you know kind of exposure to uh, to politics over. Uh, over a good long run, I, I said I said the word family, and um, yeah. I, I mean I had a good family. Uh, at the same time, the going into a liberal campaign office, and that, this was running against the finance minister Michael Wilson. Yes, and uh, I know if, I know Michael very well, but I was first introduced to him as a as a not yet sixteen year old kid at the back of the room during all candidates meetings, yelling at him quite a lot. So when I became Minister of Health, one of the first things that I had a chance to do was receive a report that he'd written on mental health, which the previous Conservative government, Tony Clement, was unwilling to receive the report from the Conservative former finance minister, Michael Wilson, because Tony Clement was afraid about the pressure it was going to put on for more funding in Mm. the area of mental health. But I, I thought that was a kind of a cynical approach to things. So, And I, I, Michael Wilson's made him incredible contribution uh, having experienced a very challenged uh, tragic situation with his uh, with his own uh, with his own son and uh, he came into my office and he said hey he said it's great to know that uh, uh, you won't be yelling at me uh, that you won't be yelling at so me so he today. remembered you. oh he remembered you. every time we uh, every time we run into each other we have uh, we well for me it's fond recollections he might just be acting his way uh, acting his way through it i'm pretty sure i was uh, i was an irritating <laughs> presence and i came home one night from the campaign office and um, my mother said, uh, I don't know whether I should take this as a good sign or not, but you've had a phone call from another riding association. They'd like you to come and heckle their, you know, come and, <laughs> come and heckle at their meetings. So for a 15-year-old kid. You were kid, a rabble rouser from yeah. the beginning. What I wanted to say was uh, one of the things about being around in politics that long is it gave me the opportunity to work in politics at a time uh, when many women who are now in very important roles in the private sector yeah. were for the most part at home uh, sure. women, uh, but women of an, of an incredible uh, caliber. And um, there are three women in particular in this riding of Etobicoke center that, uh, that uh, I could say uh, nurtured me and made me feel like that liberal campaign office is someplace I should go right after school every single day. And I remember the one day I couldn't go there, how, uh, how, uh, uh, how much I felt like I was uh, like I was letting them down, and um, yeah, those three women were amazing, and one of them went on to become a to become a senator. And uh, who were these three women? Um, their names were Simone Flaff. Okay. Uh, her uh, brother-in-law was a, I think, a cardinal of uh, of Winnipeg, a very oh, wow. very a very uh, a very feisty woman. A B. Yakimov, who was a school secretary, but a dynamic uh, political uh, political organizer, nice. and Marion Maloney, who uh, later served as a senator, and her son James Maloney is now the member of parliament for Etobicoke Lakeshore. Oh wow! Yeah, so somebody that I've uh, had the privilege of knowing for a good long time. So. That's fantastic. Now, now during this time, um, I'm curious. You know, one of sort of the notches uh, in your belt that you have is, is the first openly gay uh, cabinet minister. Now, was that in Canada or was that in Ontario? Do you know? Was, I was the first openly gay MPP in Ontario. MPP in Ontario, okay. But I like to say the first uh, in uh, the first openly gay and o- only the 200th in history. I mean, it's kind of uh, the opportunity for that piece of history yeah. was available to me sure. because lots of other gay people had run and been elected. Fair enough. But as 
but sure, as yeah. closeted individuals. Yeah, yeah. Was um, when did when did you come out? I think that it's. I tell people all the time. I don't even know if that's the right way to say. No, it, it is. It, it okay. is. It is. But it, it for me, it defies a. Like I could say in a sense, like I'm still coming out because okay. e- even though I think anyone that's heard of me ought to know a few things and by now figured out that I'm gay okay. is actually not really necessarily the case. What you might think people know about you yeah. uh, is uh, often uh, often uh, um, the, the knowledge is uh, is more limited. So sure. I'm constantly coming out because okay, yeah. I would never want to, you know, people say, well, where's your wife? Like I, I yeah. get that now. I'm getting a taxi with my two small children. It's like, you know, <laughs> so I think I'm constantly coming Fair out enough. is Fair one enough. answer. But yeah. I think that they, I could say the day I came out was that the day I phoned my mother and said, uh, by the way, mom, um, if there's anybody that you wanted the chance to tell about my sexual orientation, now would be your chance because I'm going to be on the news tonight and in oh. the Globe and Mail tomorrow. And this goes back to the time uh, in the Bob Ray government when okay. the liberals were flip. Uh, Lynn McLeod, the leader of the Liberal Party, had yeah. uh, flip-flopped on the issue of same-sex benefits, okay. not same-sex marriage or anything like this. This is the earlier, early 90s. And um, it was a real crisis moment for me uh, as a liberal because, um, uh, you know, I was torn between my political party and the, and, and my community part of me. And, um, that was a, uh, that was a moment where I worked with others to form a group called liberals for equality rights. That meant there was some interest in it from a media standpoint. I came out, uh, on the, you know, I came out on the news. Now I was out to a whole bunch of people before that, but so when are you out? Maybe when you're on the nightly news and in the globe (laughs) and in the globe and mail the next day. So early nineties. So when, when, when you were growing, like, well, let me ask you this. When, when did you know that you were gay? I think that, um, I think that those, uh, I think that was an unclear, I think that was an, uh, an unclear path for, okay. uh, for a good long, for a good long period of time yeah. through adolescence and into early, early adulthood. Okay. And, um, I think, um, and, and it was an upsetting circumstance for my mom for sure, because, uh, there was a time where even after I'd identified to her uh, as a gay man, and that would have been in my, like, maybe I would have been like 18 or 19 or something like that. Yeah. I, I dated a woman after that, maybe two women. Yeah. And uh, that kind of, uh, that kind of, ups- but this is, was, I think, really in a certain sense, my reaction to the societal pressure for sure. kind of conformity or what have yeah, you or, yeah. or, or, uh, or something like that. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't so clear cut really. Uh, was, did you ever feel... Did you ever feel, I don't know if the word is conflicted, between, you know, who you, you believed you were uh, versus, you know, maybe, you know, back in the early 90s, in the 80s, when, you know, you're getting involved in politics and, and you're hearing some of the things that people are saying, no, you know, there should be no, you know, no gay marriage and no gay rights. Was there ever conflict there for yourself internally? Um, I think the conflict, uh, the conflict, the internal conflict was you know, just, just coming of age and, and sorting it all out. But I mean, definitely I can look back on circumstances where, um, I remember one thing so well in 1986, I attended my first gay pride parade on church street. It was really a parade came down church street at that time. Okay. 1986, maybe five years after pride had, had had begun. Yeah. And, um, the, 
there's a very famous uh, steakhouse on uh, Church Street called George Bigliardi's. Okay. It's now a male strip club for anybody that's interested. Okay. Yeah, it was like back in the day when Maple Leaf Gardens was where the Toronto Maple Leafs played. Yeah. There were five or six fantastic steakhouses all around there. And, that was and some remain, but Bigliardi's was yeah. incredibly famous. And I owned a film processing store on Church Street later, and George Bigliardi became a great customer and a friend to me. Yeah. But I'll never remember the day I went in on the Monday to dinner at George Bigliardi's with my boss, who was then a provincial cabinet minister. Okay. So I'm the gay guy who on the weekend was at the gay pride parade on Church Street, right across the street from George Bigliardi's. But on the Monday, yeah. I was a, a I was a very, very lucky with my boss to yeah. be enjoying a evening dinner at George Bigliardi's. And I remember very, very well. And I don't say anything bad about George because over time I saw him evolve. But I remember okay. him came up to my boss and said, you know, yesterday they had the gays were all over this. He said, I don't know how they dare to, do, I, I don't know how they dare to proclaim themselves proud or something to, uh, yeah, yeah. something to this effect, like kind of like a came over to the table. And sure. I, at that time, I didn't say under my breath to my boss, is like, yeah, I had a fantastic time. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's an example of something I remember. I mean, that was like 1987 or 19, I think I said 86. I went to my first pride. That was either 87 or 80, 1987 or 1988 pride yeah. that that event, uh, that that event occurred. I mean, if you hang around long enough, you get the awesome opportunity to watch people in their evolution. Yes. And in almost all cases, I celebrate it. Even if someone's starting point was a little rocky. But there's one person in life that I will never accept their late in life uh, uh, apologies for the hatred that they spewed. Mm. And that's Michael Corrin. Do you know yes. that Michael Corrin? CFRB. Well, what? Yeah, briefly. He recently he recently wrote. So that guy spent a lot of time coaching everyone. You guys on, look alike. You've got oh, that. thank you so much. <laughs> thank you so much. I'm told that from satellite photos, I'm quite cute. So. <laughs> I, that's one of the most insulting things that's ever been said to me. You know what I mean? If I was Ivanka Trump, I'd be walking out right now. Um, but uh, Michael Corrin uh, recently wrote a book saying yeah. it's the Christ same sex supporting same sex marriage is the Christian thing to do, and encouraging all Christians to get on the bandwagon. Yeah. But for years, this guy was the this guy was uh, really actually the lead one of the leading spewers of hate, and I rather suspect really? coached a lot of parents in how. Uh, not to deal with circumstances if their kid happened to. Did you have a chance to, to sit with him, debate him? Of and, course. Wow. I mean, this guy. Um, this guy. Oh yeah, sure. I was subjected to all kinds of uh, wow. all kinds of uh, hostilities from uh, hostilities from him. Has he and and you, has he ever come back to you and sort of apologize? I'm like, there. My point in saying all yeah. in saying all this yeah. and singling him out is that there's a certain number of people yeah. uh, that I'm. I'm really not, uh, I'm really not, I really don't think the community ought to fall over themselves and, and cut them slack. This guy yeah. had his book, book came, uh, book came out recently and yeah. a whole bunch of gay people rallied around him to say what a great yeah. book it was. And I was like, I wasn't having any of it, but yeah. for the most part, my yeah. point was in life, people if you hang around it. long enough, yeah. you get, you know, you get this wonderful opportunity to watch people's, uh, yeah. watch people change and watch entire societies change. Yeah. And it's, uh. Here in Canada, I've seen the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms has been a huge catalyst, uh, a huge catalyst for that. And that's all credit to Pierre Trudeau. Awesome. I was, um, I, I'm, I'm curious in, in terms of your your feelings when Kathleen Wynne was, was elected. Well, um, 
I was uh, as a gay person, yeah. I was I was ecstatic, but I wasn't a supporter of Kathleen's. Okay. Um, uh, I think that uh, I think she's uh, I think she's uh, done an extraordinary job um, uh, as a role model, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm sure you know one of the things that you get one of the things that in politics you really come to appreciate is when people will tell you about how your story or your initiative in some way had a big impact on them. And I can be sure that uh, Kathleen is uh, regularly rewarded with the one-off stories from kids or from their parents about how Kathleen in one way or the other has, uh, has uh, inspired them or made their lives, uh, made their lives better. And what I, when I look at her government imperfect as any government is, I, what I really appreciate about, appreciate about her is she's a progressive and she's mm-hmm. an activist and she doesn't wake up every day saying, how can we uh, go about our business and not be noticed and yeah. don't rock the boat or what have you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's to, to pursue an agenda that is, I think, advancing, uh, advancing our society. So I have, uh, I have so much respect for her. Nice. Um, I think that, I don't know when the timeline of this was, but, you know, I, I, for sure, around you getting involved in provincial politics as an MPP, um, not only were you uh, recognized as, as an openly gay man, but there was also some talk and issues about previous drug use. Not early on, though. I mean, the reality is that, um, you know, this is where uh, this is where the supporters of Rob Ford okay. uh, try to create some... Uh, that worked hard to try and create some, oh, you guys are kind of in the same boat. Yeah, yeah, okay. But the difference is entirely, uh, the difference is entirely that uh, uh, my uh, issues with with, uh, hard drug use uh, pertain to a period before I was elected. Yeah. And I was the one that put the information in the public domain. Yeah. I wasn't being harassed to do it. No one was threatening to expose me or go to the press. My own conscience drove me there. Because one night when I was Minister of Health, as Ministers of Health and other politicians will do, I dropped by an event to bring greetings. The event was the CAMH Courage to Come Back Awards, Mm. which is an awards event, as the name would suggest, that celebrates people who have dealt with their challenges, be that mental health or addiction or or the correlation between those things. And I mounted the stage and the stage had these huge letters spelling out courage. They must have been like 14 or 16 feet high. And as I was sitting there, I kind of got this kind of tapping of my neos before I went up. And I was, I was, I just felt that it was my moment to identify, uh, to identify to and with the individuals that were there. And I Mm -hmm. said something like, uh, I said, as one who's seen the wrong side of too many sunrises, which mm. was my kind of coded way of saying sure. uh, 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 sleep was diff- sleep was sometimes difficult to achieve. Uh, then the next, then one of the women that was receiving an award there, who happened to be a reporter from the Toronto Star, okay. was attuned to what I said ah. and called me the next day. And um, the thing about it is that. Um, I, it, to me, the most remarkable aspect of it is that usually when someone in politics is about to blab something like that, they, they do it uh, with a game plan and they mm. let people know in advance that it's coming. But in this case, I really didn't telegraph this to uh, Premier McGinty. But notwithstanding that, uh, in uh, uh, his response was, was 
further demonstration just of his uh, fundamental, his fundamental decency and caring on three or four occasions over time when I think, man, he should have called me up and been really pissed at me because I'd caused a, you know, I'd caused a kerfuffle X, yeah. X Y, or Z, yeah. uh, where it had an element of it that was personal. He was much more concerned first and foremost with the personal than the political. And mm-hmm. I often, I try to absorb that because I think in so many of those circumstances, I wouldn't have had his equanimity. And I, I really, uh, uh, you know, lots of people say, criticize him, what have you. That's the nature of politics. But uh, I would defend that man, uh, defend that man and his, uh, and his honor to the end because uh, of the decency with which he operated at every moment that I ever had a chance to witness him. Some people are one thing in front of the camera. And then, yeah. no, this guy is, uh, this guy was uh, consistent and uh, his, uh, his uh, temperament and equanimity and uh, thoughtfulness and such were uh, really quite remarkable. How do you think he sort of had a, you know, his end wasn't, I don't think the way he probably wanted it to be. To say the least, I think. Um, How do you think he'll be remembered? Well, he ought to be remembered as someone who uh, restored uh, confidence in the essential public services of Ontario, healthcare and education. Yeah. And uh, that is his, that is his legacy. Uh and I think over time that will be seen for it. But uh, I think some short, I think some very, very short-sighted decision-making that was more motivated around good, pol- seemingly good politics rather than good public policy mm. uh, was, uh, uh, was uh, uh, unhelpful, obviously, yeah. and accordingly is going to be a big part, at least on the short term, sure. short to medium term, a big part of the definition of, uh, you know, the, the definition of how he did. I was long gone by then. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Furious George. How did you get that nickname? Uh, I think Tim Hudak deserves, uh, <laughs> I hate to give Tim Hudak, Tim, really? Hudak, uh, Tim Hudak too much credit, but uh, I think Tim Hudak deserves, uh, deserves credit for this one. It's yeah. perfect. I mean, it's, uh, it's totally perfect. When I was, when I was, uh, when I became minister of health, most people were quite shocked at it. It really came out of nowhere. Okay. And, uh, pe- and a lot of people were, I say shocked, some people were incredulous. And there was a whole bunch of smarty pants in the healthcare sector who really actually tried to get rid of me quite quickly. Oh, Not wow. really so widely known, but I wasn't their, uh, I wasn't their intellectual cup of tea. Or so this was their, this was the, uh, okay. this was the, uh, this was the perception. When I arrived at health at first, I just, people said, well, how are you going to do it? And I said, I'm going to do it the way I've always done. I'm going to do it the full curious George. I'm going to ask questions. Yeah. And then uh, within a day or two. Yeah. um, And the Toronto Star took a picture of me sitting in my office with some little curious George doll or something. I had no idea how much, uh, how much uh, marketing, how many different marketing items branded, I guess, however you say that, like uh, licensed items, curious George. People sent me stuff. I still pulling stuff out for my kids. They got curious. We got curious George <laughs> dolls from size like through three or four or five oh uh, sizes. The the whole bit. So that's how I I did the curious George thing. Tim Hudak turned it into Furious George. I spent a lot of time in Costa Rica over the last few years. Worked a little on my Spanish. And when I met the president of Costa Rica, I told him, I said, "Sir, uh, my children know me as Jorge El Furioso." So uh, <laughs> tried to put a little uh, tried to put a little Spanish spin on it. Also, yeah. Um, I, I, I can assure you, as I tried to do uh, then, I'm just a poodle. People said I was a pit bull, but no, I'm just a, I'm just a very, very tame little poodle. 
Well, someone called you an attack poodle. Or you were called once an attack I poodle. might have tried to. Uh, I tried to. Uh, I tried to. Uh, to play a little with the, yeah. pit, with the uh, notion of sure. a, uh, the notion of a pit bull. Um, now, one of the things that you are. I was a pit bull. I, I, I was. I, I like to think that I. Uh, I like to think that I helped to chase Mike Harris uh, out of Ontario politics. I think uh, the best line I ever had a chance to to pull off, at least in my view, I was uh, campaigning uh, just before the election for the 1999 election. I was at the uh, uh, 519 Church Street, kind of the heart of the gay community. And it used to be in the day that all candidates, means that 519 were always raucous. Yeah. And there was always a, you know, big gay element to it and the whole bit. So I was there and I said... uh, uh, my NDP opponent was there, Helen Breslauer, uh, a very, very fine woman, uh, passed uh, recently. And she said, oh, just six weeks ago, I was very pleased that in this very room, I was nominated to be the NDP candidate and blah, blah, blah. I spoke next and I said, just a few months ago in this very room, I won the Tanya Harding Award from the Gay <laughs> Hockey League. And I assure you, when you send me to Queen's Park, I won't be miscongeniality there either. So uh, I was uh, had a bit of good fun with it. Well, that's how I arrived. The Liberals uh, didn't win the election in '99, but they did win ten new seats. And uh, those uh, those of us that had arrived, myself, people like uh, Michael Bryant, uh, brought a lot of uh, brought a lot of new energy to opposition. I think played our part in helping to elect uh, a Liberal government with Premier McGuinty mm-hmm. as a Minister of Health. There are some things that you did, um, I think, uh, reduce wait times uh, and different things like that. Is, is there is there one or two things uh, while you were Minister of Health that you were very proud of? The thing about being Minister of Health is that if you start to write a list of all the things that you got to do, uh, you know, as I was responsible over five years for allocating about a quarter of a trillion dollars. That's a lot, and, yeah. you know, not all of it goes perfectly naturally. And that's some that's sometimes... People only know about stuff that didn't go well. But I would say, if you look at the situation from 2003 that we inherited as a government, the situation now with respect to access to doctors and nurses. Yeah. Uh, in 2003, the family uh, practice model, yeah. the physician model was mm-hmm. dying. And uh, now actually Ontario's model of family practice is uh, as good as anywhere and is good in anywhere as anywhere in Canada. We've minted thousands more doctors than we had then. We've uh, increased, uh, I say we, I mean, I'm, I'm, sure. I'm many years out of it now, but yeah. it takes it takes six or eight years to mint a doctor. So For the sure. rewards of starting to build up medical school programs to graduate more doctors, et cetera, this is painstaking work and it doesn't show uh, results immediately. But I think, of course, there's always pressures in healthcare and uh, there will always be bad, negative stories to tell if that's the focus that you have. But overall, I say that uh, with Premier McGuinty's support, we uh, really did a lot, I think, to reestablish confidence in the public healthcare system. And Ontario, like there are deficiencies for sure. And I, but it, I think Ontario's healthcare uh, stands up uh, to it, that of any other province in the country. Um, but I think you know, we we would have had, if we were on the same trajectory, we would have had two or three million people without a doctor. And most people that really want a doctor have the capacity to get one now. Yeah. You know, there are people without a doctor, but I know lots of people that don't really want a doctor. Sure. So they're sort of the headline that a lot of people, if they remember back in that day, was the one billion, they call it the $1 billion 
eHealth scandal? <laughs> yeah. Was I think I've heard terms. of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what happened there? Well, what do people think happened or what actually happened? You I mean, we, we so, know what we think happened, yeah, which a lot so, of people say did happen, but like, I well, guess, I mean, from, to, from your to, point of view, to the extreme, to the extreme, yeah. to the extreme uh, people like uh, Rob Ford uh, worked to distort the story to make it seem like a billion dollars went missing. Yeah. Uh, what really happened is that uh, is that Ontario, and I, I take full responsibility for this, uh, got uh, stuck, uh, stuck with having made a decision to build out our own fiber optics network. Okay. So if you yes. think about uh, your your technology uh, technology guy, talk to people in the technology business. Think about uh, Y two K. Mm-hmm. So in Y2K, the year 2000, we thought the world was going to end. Yeah. In this headspace, uh, health, uh, the protection of health data suggested that the only way to ensure the privacy of the information was to have your own wire. Yeah. So Tony Clement and Elizabeth Whitmer, my predecessors, by the time I arrived, had spent about $300 million on laying wire left, right, and center. But if, until you have the wire laid, you can't really make the systems that lay on top of it operable, but we were starting to build those. So really what you had, I think, was a report by the Auditor General that said, we spent a billion yeah. and we have too little to show for it. Mm. But he played a lot of political games. I have very little respect for that, for that guy. And uh, uh, I think he torqued that story and it created the impression amongst people that we spent a billion and there's nothing to show for it. But in point of fact, it was building aspects of a platform which have subsequently been better leveraged. But the real mistake is a technology mistake, which is Ontario continued on the path to lay cable towards its own fiber optic uh, network as opposed to buying into one renting somebody else's like Bell Emerges, sure. which had a, a very, very extensive network and connected in to, uh, to pharmacy. So I'd say the big mistake I made was not stopping dead in its tracks and saying now four or five years later, we know we don't have to have our own, uh, we, can, uh, we, can, uh, we can rent. So I was a time like kind of a time lag implication, but the politics of it, the opposition were highly effective at uh, branding the government. Mm. I had left as minister of health and was not really in the driver's seat with respect to communication. And, uh, uh, you know, so the very, very bad impression was left on people. The thing that's disheartening is for me, it's disheartening because I own this. Uh, I own, I, I, I own the baggage associated with this, which mm-hmm. is thought to be much worse than it was. But the thing that's really disheartening is, there's a certain plurality of people in Ontario that think that they got, you know, think that their billion got them nothing. Yeah. And this is not the truth. And I think an auditor should not be writing reports, which actually under, which, which uh, undermines confidence in spending to the, to such a great, to such a great extent. I don't think, I don't think it was, I don't think Ontarians were particularly well served by that report or the impression that it presented. I want to get to some, but it is my fault. And I apologize. I mean, people don't, that whole lengthy, you know, yeah. the haters out there, or any that are listening, are like, what the, I, what the hell is that guy? He's going on and on and on. I just want to hear him say sorry. Yeah. Um, so this is a little bit, uh, this is a little bit the nature of, uh, you know, the nature of opposition politics. Sure. And when an auditor general writes a report is very, very... Uh, a lot of is, people think that's, that's nonpartisan, right? Like independent. It ought to be. It yeah. ought to be. But if you look at the operation of an auditor, of an auditor, they're not all the same. Mm. And this guy was leaking things and fueling me, fueling the media, which is, in my view, not consistent with the way such an officer of the legislature is to work. 
Uh, so I, I don't, uh, I don't feel, uh, I don't feel really enamored of my experiences with that auditor okay. and, uh, I'm working on a book and I will settle a score or two in that book. Oh, also. lovely. Well, you, you can, uh, uh, you know, similar to, to Doug Ford. I'm waiting till after the, I'm waiting till after the <laughs> Ford book comes out so that I can actually correct all the lies that they're very certain to, uh, that they're very certain oh, to embed there. I don't know if that's going to be a piece of comedy or, or what. Well, the press, his press event was a piece of comedy. It I was. mean, they staged so many events at that family home. They're going to have to zone that thing commercially soon. I mean, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's just going out of style. I promised people that they could ask you questions. I'm going to ask some questions that people have left for you on my Facebook page. So, uh, a good friend of mine, Zahira, wanted to ask, you know, being a father of young kids, uh, your thoughts on today's educational system? My, um, I could not be, I could not be happier. Okay. I, I am a, I'm a single dad. I live out the, uh, it takes a, it takes a village. Uh, my children are surrounded in their school environment with uh, professional staff from the principal, from the teacher on up or the principal on um, with, uh, more, uh, with more love and support and a sense of community than I ever could have imagined a school could provide. And to boot, we have a swimming pool and a school wow. with a pool is, uh, something that Kathleen Wynn and I uh, proudly collaborated on. And it's, it's an example of a real benefit in a school. Now I don't live in, I, I, I ran into a guy this summer whose, uh, son, was in my daughter's kindergarten, senior kindergarten class last year. Okay. He was moving. He's like, this school, pointing at our school, because he yeah. lived across the street from it, as I do, uh, he had uh, looked at the EQAO results okay, and yeah. had determined that for the purposes of EQAO results, he was going to move his uh, family to uh, Broadview and Mortimer, okay. which, is a very nice, <laughs> which is a very nice area. And uh, my personal view about uh, EQAO results is that... Uh, they're not as mo- they're not necessarily a reflection on the school. Um, so I would never look at an EQAO result and write off a school or decide to pay four hundred thousand dollars more in, uh, for a house in a close, you know, in a uh, in a uh, battle sure. uh, on the perception of schools. Yeah. But lots and lots and lots of people do. Yeah. So okay. our school is a uh, is called Carlton Village Health and Wellness Academy. So it's a it's oh. a it's a Toronto inner it's it's a mo- part of the Toronto Toronto District School Board model schools program. They uh, have a tremendous amount of the programming is towards health and wellness. And parents are even invited in on certain mornings of the week to use the, to use the uh, exercise. They have a pretty good little gym there. And so it's just to me an example of a school fulfilling its uh, role as a, as such an important community asset. That's amazing. Uh, Mark Farmer wants to ask you a question about transit. Um, he wants to know how do we get shovels in the, in your opinion, I know you're not involved, uh, but in your opinion, how do we get shovels in the ground for the relief line before doomsday comes in? Well, the re- firstly on the relief line, like it pisses me off. Like you want to spend 20 or like anyone. That, okay. Firstly, a little cynical here on my part, perhaps, but I don't trust the TTC at all, okay. especially as a big, as a big project implementer. Yeah. There's no, there's nobody. I, I just don't trust them. Right. Not in the least. So when I see cost estimating yes. around the first phase of the relief line, yeah. I estimate, I see the price and I double it. So uh, here's the problem. Firstly, and I think it's the biggest criticism I could level about John Tory is we've just, we're just about to blow $3 billion on a one-stop subway. 
And we're doing it because everybody wanted Scarborough to feel like Scarborough wants in. And I supported the yeah. extension of the subway line to Scarborough in the RT route, yeah. which has uh, subsequently been made impossible. Yeah. And we've ended up with these incredible, this incredibly expensive solution, which is a solution to a political problem, but a very, very expensive uh, use of $3 billion of transit money. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is anybody that's looking for shovels in the ground on the relief line yeah. is... Uh, uh, I think they're going to be waiting. Uh, I think they're wow. going to be waiting a good long, uh, a good good long time. Um, I think. Um, well, we're about to, you know, the pro- shovels in the ground. So Eglinton Crosstown, yeah, eight billion. The wow. tunnels dug. The stations are being built. You know, I live out by the UP Express line, which is lots of people criticize, but is a is an insight into the future use of uh, rail corridors for transit yeah but i'm a highly dubious about anything more than gamesmanship mm. about the relief line already you've seen the city and the province announce 150 million dollars in early stage planning money for the relief line yeah and this is just because john tory was so focused on uh on smart track yeah and on uh Scarborough, yeah, that he was getting so much pressure because people were saying screw smart track we want the relief line in there ahead of it He's like, no, 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 that's my baby. He shrunk it down to seven stations. I think they're soon going to announce funding for those uh, smart track stations. But I'm highly dubious about uh, Mm -hmm. highly dubious about early progress on the relief line because the financial wherewithal is uh, is absent. Mm -hmm. I mean, the scale of that project uh, is uh, is uh, is highly extraordinary. I do think one of the great points of pressure, ironically. Uh, for the relief line comes from the desire of York region to have an expansion of the Young Street, whatever number. I, you know, we have three lines. I can't keep track of all those numbers that we have on those lines. But yeah. the expansion to, you know, there's a strong desire in York region to have the subway run up there, up Young Street, That's which right. makes tremendous sense. Sure. But since there's no capacity on that line, it they're hard-pressed to see progress on it. So in a certain sense, the good news is that York region also needs the downtown relief line to create enough capacity to justify the extension of the subway further north up Young Street, which I think most of us would agree makes, theoretically makes at least, makes a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, I had Richard Petty in a couple of episodes ago, and he's a big supporter of transit. Sure. Um, you know, put I guess just, you know, public transit alternatives to cars and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I went car free. I mean, three, four, three months ago. Yeah. I went car free and, uh, I've been, uh, I've been enjoying it. And now if I don't get a good bicycle ride in, I, uh, it's it's a missing element of joy in my life. And now I got this great big garage that I'm going to turn into my own, uh, my own uh, man cave. Nice. (laughs) You'll have to invite us over for, uh, for sure. Watch the Super Bowl or... or oh, I thought you were going to say to hang drywall. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> first things first. You, you do not want me to, to help with that. Trust me. Um, but um, he, he was talking about... Richard Petty was talking about... I asked him, you know, how do we fund these things? And he said, Kareem, listen, it's, 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 it's not magic. It's, it's, it's true and it's real. You know, whether you call it taxes or whether you call it tolls, it, it has to cost money and people need to realize if you want you know, a livable city at, at this size and above it, it needs to be done. When I was infrastructure minister, I uh, uh, was really pressing uh, Premier McGinty on this point. Uh, and um, I remember, uh, I think in my time as minister, he phoned me maybe three or four times, which is uh, 
which is an, a, a good sign, I think, insofar as he was quite trusting and hands off. On one occasion, he called me to say, we've been having this discussion about uh, finding dedicated forms of revenue generation to justify transit projects. Uh, and that, you know, there's five or six things you can do. You can have parking lot taxes, which the city of Toronto is taking a hard look at right now. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. you can have toll roads, you can have gasoline taxes, you can have taxes, you can have increased permit fees for motor vehicle registration. You can have, you know, you can have uh, congestion zones or what have you. There's like not that many variations on the theme. True. And true. Uh, really the premier was considering that, but at the point the decision was made to implement the HST uh, he rightly concluded that the mm -hmm. capacity wasn't there to do all of those things. So lots of people like to criticize uh, Premier Wynne for having sold off portions of Hydro One. And I, I have my own issues with the idea of an organization which is kind of, I think, runs the risk of being a bit schizophrenic between its public and private masters. And over time, I don't know how that culture is going to seed. Yeah. But... To, and I know there's lots of people that feel that, uh, you know, that's like part of our birthright. You can't sell off uh, uh, sell off uh, hydro lines and all of that. But I think that it does demonstrate at least the extent to which Premier Wynne has identified the sheer economic and environmental necessity mm. of addressing gridlock. Yes. And it's one of those, a lot of times people are like, well, if you spend this money, it will create this, it will create this. But the this is not actually that easy to quantify. But I think all of us can see uh, if you just try to travel around uh, the costs associated with uh, traffic congestion and uh, and gridlock, the economic. I'm the son of a trucker, so that's an easy calculation <laughs> for me to yeah. uh, for me to make. So I think um, I think she deserves credit at least for the for the extent to which she was prepared to go. To, to proactively address transportation challenges, even though the cupboard is quite bare. Mm. And the decision to sell off chunk of Hydro One to achieve that, I think demonstrates just how, uh, that's a tough, uh, that's a tough set of, uh, that's a tough set of decisions. Yeah. But I think a lot of people haven't figured out what, what the provincial government is moving towards is go trains running all day long, shorter trains, not these monstrous, whatever they are, 10 yeah. cars long, Shorter trains, more like the UP Express. I don't know if you've run, if you've ridden that. I have thing, not but yet. You should no. give it a try. You should give it a try. Kids, <laughs> kids are free. Um, and uh, I think that, um, you know, the proposal is for Go to emerge as a full day service running on a 15 minute, uh, about a 15 minute service. Okay. okay. So instead of just those three trains that go all one way in the morning and yeah. three that, or four or five that go back the other way is actually my uh, local go train stop at the blue or go or the up express station also is like, i'll be able to hop on that train and go to kitchener yeah you know or go to waterloo for a lunch or go to waterloo for lunch well just and, to get across town even right so and that you know eglinton across town and things so i think that uh we have a government at the moment in ontario that is doubling down to the extent that it's able to on transit and transportation infrastructure mm -hmm. but the need is so great and it's built up over such a great period of time. It's really, really, it's really, really hard to play. Even though I could, I can applaud all the new pieces of infrastructure that are coming to life. Those will not be enough to discernibly uh, reduce, uh, reduce gridlock, even though they will improve the daily circumstances for hundreds of thousands of people. Absolutely. Um, Zanita Hirji wants to ask, we may have talked about this, but um, you know, you again are not not the healthcare minister anymore. You're not even in politics anymore. 
but your thoughts on you know where we where are we in Ontario in terms of when it comes to healthcare? Well, I said before that I think Ontario stacks up quite good uh, versus all the other provinces. Mm -hmm. The the new health minister, uh, Jane Philpott, the national health minister, has suggested that Canada doesn't do as well as we think we do as compared to other OECD. uh, I'm better part of the OCD block than the OECD. But uh, no, that um, that that there's that there's uh, that there's improvement to be made. Yeah, uh, certainly. It's a very, very challenging situation because healthcare is a constitutional responsibility of the provinces. That's right. But in Canada, because of the uh, actions around Medicare, it took on a different impression. And now a lot of people think healthcare is a nationally mandated program, where in fact the government of Canada provides about 25 cents on the dollar. Started out as supposed to be a 50 50 deal. Oh, interesting. It's 25 cents of the dollars for public healthcare. Come from the federal government, and the rest of the provinces are forced to uh, forced to find. My opinion is that the healthcare system is pretty good, but having said that, the combined demographic tsunamis of aging, yeah, and not just aging, but also people living older with chronic disease, and the and the levels of chronic disease in our communities, like diabetes, as an example, yeah, uh, means that across our thirteen point seven five million population base. Ontario, like other provinces, has a lot of what I would describe, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, as frequent flyers. In other words, Mm. there are a lot of people who, by combination of chronic disease and aging, who are pulling and will continue for the next several decades to pull on a lot of services. So as much as I think our healthcare system is fundamentally pretty good, I can't imagine too much... uh, I can't really imagine that much uh, that much improvement because mm. the fiscal limitations are what they are, and the uh, and the demographics are working are working against, against uh, us, working yeah. against us. Um, Kelly doesn't have a question, but Kelly Diamond, she says you might know and remember her ex husband Hans Friedman and the Feldman. Yes. The two of them, she says, both of you Hans, actually yeah. worked together. Yes, back um, in the day. yeah, exactly. Um, I remember, uh, yes, I do remember. Yeah. I remember she I, just I, wanted to say hello. <laughs> plus it's, it's, it's nice. I was, I'm not sure if she's still living on, uh, uh, still living on uh, Jarvis Street, which is the last place that I knew the. She's around yeah. Pape Station. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I, um, yeah, well, that's the thing, as I mentioned about uh, politics, that it can take on a fan, you know, take yeah. on an element of, uh, an element of a family. And I've been, uh, I've been at this for a good long time. So it's just amazing. Like if you just get up and start, Move and you move around. Uh, people are just stopping you constantly on the street. I was walking across Dundas Street by uh, by Young Dundas Square on my way over uh, this way uh, earlier, and a woman riding by on a bike uh, stopped me and reminded me that we'd met uh, at uh, met with this guy Mutadi, who's this uh, great uh, great global drummer, and uh, okay. met at the Mutadi International Drumming Festival, and I, I subsequently drummed a little bit with them, and uh, we were reminiscing about that. So. It's nice when you're just out circulating people like there's so many people that just say, hey, remember me or I knew this, that or the other thing. You know, like, you know, how they say like during TIFF and stuff like that uh, or during filming uh, high profile actors and such like Toronto because they they can still get their personal space. They're not overrun with adoring. Well, I think the same thing holds true is that people are quite polite and even even I could say for all the times that. Uh, people have come and said something to me 
is like 90, 10 positive to, oh, that's positive good. to negative. So that's, that's good. always good also. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my brother and sister both have a question. I'll go with my brother's question. Um, so he's asked, um, as a politician, um, you're not out of politics. Um, Once at- a politician, always a politician, I think. True. I guess you're out of office. I say I'm a recovering, I'm a recovering politician. (laughs) And then someone said, no, we're recovering from you. Are there nine steps you have to take? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, What, what project are you most proud of? I think I'm most proud of the, I think I'm most proud of the uh, work that I did in the earliest uh, stages to create the conditions for the redevelopment of Regent Park. And uh, the Regent Park community and the people of Regent Park are the enduring source of of, uh, lessons learned and inspiration for me. I love those people. I love that place. And I think it's one of the greatest signs of of, uh, public sector and private sector uh, and citizen participation and progress. Yeah. Um, I want to go, before I get to my sister's question, um, my cousin Riaz asks... um, you fell short in your campaign to be mayor against Rob Ford. Um, what happened? Where do you feel things went wrong? <laughs> when people voted for him, I think that was when things went really <laughs> uh, when things went really wrong. Or thirteen minutes after uh, eight o'clock, things went really wrong. People, the people in my suite were still eating their shrimps, and we all had to uh, decamp so I could make a concession speech. I think things went well. Things it's a comp. It's I can answer that a thousand ways. I yeah. think. Things went wrong uh, because I was a uh, establishment. I was an establishment candidate in a change election cycle. Okay, and I have to tell you, as I find a lot of, uh, I find a lot of similarity to the challenges that Hillary Clinton's facing mm. uh, in the United States. When, when um, all ex- you usually think back in the day, it was framed that a person seeking to be a mayor or a, or a, uh, or a president yeah. that people would want to know that they had a certain amount of relevant experience in the realm. And yes. in my election, that didn't count for anything. All experience was characterized as baggage. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton's got, despite the fact that she's got quite a record of accomplishment over decades and decades, the more negative aspects of her, uh, of her work, Benghazi and emails yeah. is my e-health. And uh, I think um, I think uh, it's interesting in that um, the electorate uh, and Trump plays perfectly to this because he wasn't enter he was a businessman yeah entertainer yes. you know me, you know like yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, with his television show which actually kind of normalized his crazy behaviors and uh, I think a lot of people today who have disdain for politics are quite prepared to support a political candidate that they think might actually give them some entertainment. And I think that there's, there was Fordtainment where a certain number of people were drawn to support the Fords just because they knew it was going to be exciting. Yeah. Crazy perhaps, but exciting. And I think that there's a certain number of people that are willing to kind of damn the consequences and vote for Trump because they think that at least it'll be exciting, entertaining. I'm not ignoring you, but my next guest is next door. So I'm just texting him. Uh, to come on over. Um, your, your thoughts on, um, you know, you talked a little bit about John Tory um, and, and one of the problems you had with him in terms of the, the transit portfolio of the city. Um, you, your thoughts from transitioning, your thoughts on Toronto, transitioning from Ford to Tory. Well, there's still a sense of relief. So fundamentally, people ask me, how do you think John Tory's doing? 
And I said, on one count, he's doing great. And the prospect of him not being reelected is unimaginable to me. Yes. Yeah. Because most people are still rating him on the basis of, well, he sure looks good compared to that, compared to all the shit show that we had to go through last time. I think if you hold up, but I think over time, his mayor, his, his record is going to be held up to much more challenging scrutiny. And I think that, uh, I think that in particular, uh, the transit decisions are going to be, ha- are, are, you know, run the risk of, uh, of, uh, of haunting, uh, of haunting him. But, you know, I think that most people, most, most people just look there and say, well, when the media interviews him, he yeah. speaks reasonably. And I'm sure glad there's an adult in charge down there. And I think that that sense of relief is strong. You can see in any public opinions polling that's been done about uh, John, he's very, very highly regarded. I, I'm of the opinion. I often said is that to people is like, don't make the mistake that politics is a popularity contest. Mm. It sounds a bit weird because in a certain sense, it kind of is. But if you think that you can go about politics in a fashion where you're pleasing everybody and bringing everybody along, mm-hmm. then you run the risk, I think, of being a politician that pa- that maybe is inclined to kind of uh, pander to all uh, pander to all sides. So I think if you want to be a politician, it's best if you're not that fixated on being perf- on being like on being universally loved. And I think John likes to. I think Mr. Tory is uh, somebody that really likes to uh, re- really likes to try and please everybody, and it's a very important. Impo- turns out to be a very impossible row to hold. Yeah. You, 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 you succeeded him to a point where you were doing some radio show as well, right? I did a little, I, I did a little bit of, uh, I filled in for him a few times yeah. when he was, uh, trying to take a long weekend in Florida. <laughs> okay. So, uh, how was the radio gig for you? The radio, I enjoy, um, I enjoy the radio. Uh, I enjoy the radio. I have, I, I, I think, um, it's an excellent, uh, it's an excellent medium. Um, the opportunity to, uh, you know, the opportunity to do that is, uh, is good. But on the other hand, uh, you know, they want you to spend hours in preparation for a three hour show. It's like, I don't really need as much. So it was, uh, it, it's like a ho- it's like a hobby, uh, but I need to make a living. So it's a, you know, okay. a bit of a trade off that right. way. You know, it's nice to be in the mix. It's nice to have the opportunity to talk about public policy. It would yeah. be nice to be on Twitter all day long responding to this, that, oh, yeah. and this, that, and the other. <laughs> sure, sure. But you got to be a little bit careful that you're not distracted from the things that are actually paying your bill. So it's yeah. one thing to do those. If you're a politician and you're working in the political realm, you have political staffers and people are doing X, Y, and Z. But for me, I have to be a little bit careful not to get distracted by uh, every uh, every little uh, uh, every little trinket that uh, comes along. So. I end up biting my tongue a lot. So I got a lot to say, but you know, I was like, well, I want to say something, but then I'm going to have to respond to 50 haters and all kinds of other stuff. It's just not worth it. You know? well, Take that, a pass. That's when you know you actually have an opinion, right? And that, you know, you're not, you're not pandering to, I got to make sure I say this, you know, in, in my day job, I have to pause and think yeah. before I send an email. Well, I set myself, uh, I decided after politics that, um, that more than anything else, I wanted to be independent. And uh, people ask me what I do and I point first and foremost to my kids because if you're a parent and if you're a single parent, uh, I'm a working single parent, but the single parenting aspect and all the domestic challenges, that comes first and whatever energy I've got less left, I apply that 
Yeah. And really, I've tried to be an independent entrepreneur and I've enjoyed the opportunity to participate in the growth and development of so many startups and uh, and uh, stuff. And I, I get a great charge out of it. And sometimes people will hire me to come and tell them the way power works or to make speeches on things. And I just love the opportunity. I like the performance art. I like the performance art of politics. I like the yeah. engagement with people. I like knowing how your speech is going over. Yeah. And uh, I miss uh, I miss some of that. Uh, I miss some of that. My sisters challenged me on Facebook to, to ask you personal questions. Um, so I said, okay, I'm going to do this. She said, get uncomfortable and ask the question. Um, Why are you taking off your shirt? <laughs> One day we'll video this and people will know. Um, you, you didn't set out to be a single dad. Uh, but in 2013, end of 2013, due to some unfortunate circumstances, um, your partner passed away. Um, and you became a single dad. How, my question is more along the lines of, of, of becoming a single dad. How, how does that change, change your life? Well, um, in a certain way, uh, in a certain way, I can only say that, uh, my, my children are, my children have been my saving grace in the circumstance. I losing one's, uh, losing one's, uh, uh partner is never, uh, never easy. Obviously the circumstances of Christopher taking his own life, uh, uh, make that all the more, uh, make that all the more difficult. It'd be a lot of days when I wouldn't have been able to get out of bed were it not for the fact that I had to. Yeah. And, uh, me and my kids are, uh, me and my kids are a strong unit, but like, what do you do? No one is, no one is prepared for that. And, uh, and, uh, you just, uh, you just do your best to respond to the to respond to the circumstances, but, you know, to be able to meet my children's emotional needs and, uh, and my own and, uh, and all of that, it's very, it was very, very, it still is. I mean, it's a grieving process goes on. We yeah. talk about Christopher constantly and, uh, um, uh, but I got through it because of my kids and with the help of, uh, with the help and support of, uh, people that have, uh, done more than one ever would have expected people like Salma. Yeah, who cooked for my who cooked for us for weeks on for wow. weeks on end. And wow. she's 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 a great cook too. My kids love Salma's spicy chicken. And, yeah, uh, we've been to so many iftar and uh, okay. iftar events and stuff like that at her at her house. She's uh she's she's just great. And uh, Barbara Hall, the former mayor, is like my big sister. Uh, has been there for uh, been there for me and yeah. unexpected people too, like a like a woman, a former hospital CEO who uh, befriended. Uh, my my daughter and take and for the last two summers has taken my daughter to her cottage for several days and takes her out shopping and stuff like that. So uh, through the goodness of uh, through the goodness of people and uh, I have a, a certain amount of kind of inner strength and I've just called upon it and uh, you know you just uh, one one foot in front of the other. I, I don't you know you get into a like lots and lots of times in our lives we forced to confront something that we had no training preparation to do. Yeah. And by hook or by crook, we do our best to get through it. I, I know I'm getting, you know, it puts a lot of pressure on myself as a single parent too, as I, I I'm off to a much better start at this school year, the beginning of this school year than I was, than I was a year ago. Yeah. Things are improving for us. We're as a family, me and my kids were, we're grieving and getting through it and, communicating and it's an ongoing uh, process it's an ongoing like. process yeah 100 100 and these kids have known like for me you know is one thing these kids were uh were, they know that their mother uh they they were born to the same mom but they never lived together um 
they knew their mom couldn't, you know, I just said, she, she loved you, but she couldn't, she didn't have the wherewithal to take care of you. So that was a, you know, that's a huge loss in and of itself. Sure. Then they got brought into a new family and one of those, uh, one of those, you know, data passes. Yeah. And uh, we had three cats have died through circumstances over the time. And my mm. mother passed away last November. So I just feel like as man, I'm feeling the burden of all of those things. Yeah. And, and now you've got to be that pillar for the kids. Yes, because you just have to extrapolate and figure if your sense of loss yeah. and grieving is at this level, then imagine what it must be for those two little souls. Yeah. And uh, I was traveling a lot internationally early in the early on, and I've been to China 11 times since 2010. And I was going to Costa Rica a lot, working on green energy business, and traveling to India and Bangladesh, Thailand, Korea. Yeah. And really, I've 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 stopped all that, and I'm a very close to home dad. What is it? What is close a, to school? Also, say what what is a day in the life of George look like today? Uh, day in the life of, uh, looks like, uh, looks like I try, I tell people all the time is I try to look retired. Uh, <laughs> um, well, it's, uh, it's a day, uh, that is, uh, filled, that is filled with a, uh, variety of, uh, professional and domestic opportunities. And, uh, you know, we rise, uh, this year, like part of what I was saying is that just being, getting a better routine going, uh, we're getting up 45 minutes earlier than we were last year, getting to school early so kids can play. So, you know, up at uh, 7 or 7.30 and uh, the, I can't get my kids to sleep early enough and I need a certain amount of adult time. So oftentimes I'm tired. They go to bed. I ought to be doing some work. I might or might not have the energy for it, but I definitely got to get a few hours of my own uh, mindless time in kid free uh, before I go to bed. What I've, I've always been a good sleeper. But now I find actually I'm having to sleep more in what I describe as jet lag style. So if you go, if I go to China, as I mentioned, I've often done, there's sometimes you want to be awake, but you really can't be. So you uh, work with what you've got. And so if I got to get a little cat nap in here or there, then I, uh, then I do it just to keep the wheels turning. Perfect. Thanks so much for your time. I've kept you longer than I wanted. I'm keeping somebody else waiting back there as well. But uh, when you do get your book done, I hope you'll come back and we can chat some more. Definitely. That would be my great pleasure. Thanks Thank so you. much, George. My pleasure. Appreciate it.